Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. This is Nashville as our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We're journeying into the identity of our city and region, and we're bringing you along with us. Our city's LGBTQ scene has changed a lot over the years. From back in the day, when bars like The Jungle and Juanita's opened up, and the gay and lesbian newspaper Dare first hit the stands, to now, as the state considers anti-LGBTQ legislation. Today's show is all about our queer communities, then and now. But first, the state comptroller is about to take over Mason, Tennessee. What does this mean for the majority black town? Here to help break down what that means exactly is Tennessee Lookout reporter Anita Wadwani and Mason Vice Mayor Virginia Rivers. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me on. Really a pleasure to have you both on. Now, this story has a lot of moving parts. Vice Mayor Rivers, can you give us some historical context about Mason and describe your town for us? Well, historically, we've been here a long time, like 153 years. It's our charter is 153 years old. Um, we have um, been trying to do the things that needs to be done in Mason. Um, we are moving forward, and we did not and have not waited till uh, the Comptroller Office decided to show up. We have already been working on things to move out town for preparing for the blue oval that is coming. Uh, the things that, as far as our uh, audits and budgets and all those things that have been put out to the public is incorrect. So when Jason Mumpower, the state comptroller, sent an ultimatum to you and other members of Mason leadership, what was the, your reaction? Well, we were shocked. We were not prepared. Is we were really blindsided by it because we didn't know that's what he was coming to do. He called the meeting with us, but until we got to the meeting, that's when we knew what his intents were. Anita, the comptroller sends out reports every other week. Why did this one catch your attention? Well, because this one was really unusual. You know, I've been reporting in Tennessee for 20 years, and I get maybe a couple emails a week from the comptroller with audits or investigations. And they sent an email out that contained a letter to the residents of Mason, uh, essentially urging them to urge their elected leaders to give up the town charter. So that kind of caught my eye immediately. Um, and then I picked up the phone and I talked with the vice mayor and thought there might be uh, sort of an interesting story there. So has the state taken over others' towns due to fi financial issues? It has. It's a, it's a rare step, but it is one that uh, state officials have taken before. They currently control the finances or oversee the finances in Van Buren County. 
they for five years oversaw the finances of a little town called Jellicoe. It's about the size of Mason. And they tell me back in the 80s or early 90s, they controlled the finances of Van Buren County. So it, it is a step that they have taken. Um, it's, it's rare. And as far as I know, in each of those three cases, um, there was never a request or an ultimatum to cede the uh, town or county charter. Mm. And Vice Mayor Rivers, as has the Comptroller's Office been in communication with you all about this plan takeover? No, uh, we just knew that they were going to take over. We, Mr. Monpower and the Comptroller's Office, during from the time of that meeting, they had not one time reached out to the mayor or myself or any official uh, to communicate with us what their intents were. We, uh, we didn't know what their intents were until we received a letter from them yesterday stating what their intents were to do and that they would be taking over our finances on the 28th. Now, Mason is about five miles away from a future site where Ford is planning a major investment in creating electric truck and battery plant. It's called Blue Oval City. Anita, what role does this plan site play in all of this? So, you know, Blue Oval City, um, and there's been a lot of press about this. So, uh, you know, I think there's a general understanding that Tennessee is about to get perhaps the largest manufacturing investment in state history. Mm -hmm. And that's a electric truck and battery plant or couple of plants that are going to be built less than five miles from Mason. So it's an area... And, you know, forgive me, Vice Mayor, I had never heard of Mason before I got that email from the comptroller. But I think, you know, it's an area that people haven't paid a lot of attention to. And and now, starting this year, that area, Mason, the towns and counties surrounding the Ford plant are going to go through like a huge, a, a tremendous trans, uh, transformation. They estimate that roughly 26,000 people are going to be, you know, working and moving to the area. Of course, some of the existing workforce in the area is included in that number, but um, the the landscape's going to change quite a bit, and it's going to change really fast. And Mason is right there. Well, Vice Mayor Rivers, what would that mean for your town? That would mean that our town would grow. Uh, we could have businesses and, and school, probably schools, hopefully. Uh, it means a lot. We are glad the Blue Over is coming. We, we're just uh, at a point where we are discouraged to the fact that the comptrollers are now trying, since the over has come, now trying to come in and uh, paint a picture to the people that the administration that's there now has done nothing, which is not true. Uh, both of these bills, whatever we are dealing with, is from past administrations. We have did when we are doing uh, what we need to do to rectify those situations. 
Um, so we are working our hearts out on this. I'm curious, what are the residents of Mason? How are they reacting to this? Well, there are different reactions. Um, we have some that um, that's for it, and we have a few that are, are not. But it's because of the letter that Munpower sent to the constituents without even uh, talking to the leaders of the town. We didn't even have any I We had no idea that this was even coming out until the constituents brought it to our attention, that this letter was sent to them. And to me, the letter was for them. He was trying to conquer and divide our town by trying to get our constituents who elected us to come against us to give up the charter, which is was his main goal was for us to give up the charter. Now, Anita, what are you looking to cover next as this story develops? What are you watching? Well, I think, you know, what's happening with Mason um, and what's happening to that area is going to need a lot of eyes on it. There's going to have to be a lot of decisions made about, you know, about zoning, about sewer lines, about building roads, about housing developments. Those decisions, like I said, are going to have to be made really fast. And I think the thing that, you know, I as a journalist am going to be looking for is what decisions are going to be make them, made, who's making them, and who stands to gain and lose from them. And that applies to Mason, as well as that whole area around this uh, future Ford plant. Vice Mayor Rivers. What do you want our listeners to know about Mason and everything that your town is facing? What I would like for them to know is that Mason is a good place. We're small, but we are we want to benefit from what is coming into our area. We want the same benefit. We want to grow. We want to, uh, like uh, Miss Anita said, uh, we got to have find out who doing what. We know who buying up the land in our area, uh, so that um, the, we want to be able to benefit in a way where our citizens can be happy. We want them to know that what they're seeing in the papers, or have seen, or have been written in the papers. That is not true. We want them to understand about our artists, about our budget. They're not behind. These are the things that they're being fed. They're being fed things about our finances being $500,000-odd behind. Uh, that's not true. He's getting that information from past uh, audits, still looking at what we have current and where we are now. He making it seem like that nothing's going to get done unless he come in. But if we could really tell the city where uh, the people of our town where we really are with those water repayments, with our audits and with our budget, they would see. We are working. These things are being done. We didn't need him to come in to do what he's doing. That is Virginia Rivers, vice mayor of Mason, Tennessee, and Anita Wadwani of the Tennessee Lookout. Thanks to you both. For joining us. When we come back, we'll take a look at Nashville's vibrant queer history. Don't go away. This is Nashville.
Welcome back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. The LGBTQ scene in Nashville has changed a lot over the years. We want to go back in time to get to know the scene of yesterday a little better. I'm talking the 50s, when the first official gay bar opened here, to the 60s, when countercultural movements were taking hold across the country, into the 80s, when we got our first gay and lesbian newspaper here in Tennessee. Here with us to take a look back is Jeff Ellis, the founder of that newspaper. Jeff, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Oh, <clears throat> pleasure to have you with us. So in 1988, you and your late right. partner, Stuart Bevan, started Query, a weekly newspaper dedicated to the gay and lesbian community. Tell me, That's how, correct. how did you and Stuart meet? <laughs> well, we were at a fundraiser for the National Contingent to the 1987 March on Washington for Gay and Lesbian Rights. And um, I saw this guy standing near me and I thought, you know, I think I want to meet him. So I was trying to um, gin up the courage to do so when a drunk walked by, bumped into a woman who had been talking to Stuart and knocked her to my feet. I helped her up, said, can I buy you a drink? And she said, sure, you should meet my friend Stuart. <laughs> and she introduced us. And uh the rest is history, I guess. That's what I like to call a happy accident right there. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. So tell me, what inspired you both to start this paper? Well, Stuart had been a law student at Vanderbilt at a time when there were several homophobic incidents happening on campus, and he spoke out about it. Uh, there had been some uh, articles written in the Vanderbilt Hustler uh, that were... Um, rather offensive. He, and he realized then the need for um, um, objective journalistic coverage for our community. And so after he graduated, he really uh, didn't want to uh, practice law. And I had a background in journalism and we decided to start um, a gay newspaper. We called it D.A.R.E. after um, the famous um, uh, Lord Alfred Douglas letter to uh, Oscar Wilde about the love that dare not speak its name. So uh, we decided to start a newspaper, and it was that simple, quite frankly. And we set about um, uh, talking to potential advertisers and set about um, deciding what our coverage could actually be. And um, we got our first issue ready. It was published by a local printer here in Nashville. And um, later that day, after they had delivered our papers to us, they told us they could no longer print our paper because it was a gay and lesbian newspaper. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so that set us on a, um, um, a quest to find someone who would print us. And uh, Luckily, my mentor from MTSU, Dorothy Harrison, who was at the time um, PR director at MTSU, suggested we contact um, the people at the Lebanon Democrat. And so we did. And they welcomed us with open arms. And the fact that that happened 
was good for us because it became a new story for uh, the local mainstream press. And as a result, people were talking about us. And that put us in the hands of a lot more people than we could have initially hoped for. Okay. I'd like to bring in my next guest. Dr. Marissa Richmond is a historian at Middle Tennessee State University. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jeff was just telling us about how they started this paper in the 80s, but our queer community's history goes back much, much further than that. Help us understand Nashville's LGBTQ scene and how it's grown over the years. Well, coming out of World War II, there were a lot of people, uh, despite the the president's executive order uh, to ban uh, uh, gay people serving in the military, the fact is gay people served in the military. Uh, people stepped up to the call uh, to serve the country uh, in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Um, many, of course, did not come back, but uh, they were serving in same-sex units. Uh, many who served, um, particularly in continental Europe and in London and, and in Paris after the liberation, uh, gained a new sense of community and a new sense of identity. And when they came home, they started opening nightclubs and uh, and creating newspapers and political organizations. Um, and so there was this explosion all over the country. Nashville was not alone. And uh, we start to see uh, some nightclubs open up. Uh, and you mentioned in the introduction, the jungle in Juanitas, they were in downtown Nashville, uh, directly across the street from the bus station, which made it easy for people who wanted to come into Nashville to get off the bus and walk across the street and go someplace and have a drink and and meet people and uh, and start to socialize. And similar uh, things were happening in cities all over the country. Now, you're talking about how people formed community back then. And I'm gonna ask you, as a black trans woman, what, sh- what was your experience in finding community like? Um, well, of course, uh, for you know, in the pre-internet days, there were very few uh, options in finding information. And um, uh, of course, I had moved away. I was actually living in Washington, D.C., but, um, but when I was coming back home to visit my family, um, you know, I, I don't remember where I first saw it. I remember D.A.R.E. even before they changed the name to Query. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, learning of resources, uh, finding out, you know, sometimes just through word of mouth about the, the clubs that were out there and just a uh, little, you know, taking, you know, baby steps a uh, little bit at a time trying to figure out where you could go, what was safe, where you were, you know, what was acceptable. And um, uh, of course, things really started to explode in the 90s with the, with the, the world, the web um, and, uh, uh, and resources uh, becoming more readily available thanks to the internet um, and, and people searching out literally around the world I remember we got a, an email from someone in Poland <laughs> trying to find resources there. Hmm. And this was shortly after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and communism. And the closest thing we could find for them was Berlin. But the reality is that people everywhere were looking for resources and, and one way or another starting to find them. If you're just joining us, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with members of the LGBTQ community about its history here in Music City. I want to welcome my next guest, counselor and human rights activist, Phil Michael Thomas. Phil, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Phil, tell me a little bit about what it was like being out as a black man, a gay black man back in the day. 
Well, actually, I used to say, because uh, we I used to go around with other people when we would do panel discussions and just information, whatever. And I used to I always wanted to be the last one to speak because I would. And when I spoke, I always said, I actually don't exist. Hmm. And the people look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, first of all, I'm a black gay male. And especially at that time, no one, in the, even in the black community and gay, would even come out and step forward to admit publicly that they were gay. Uh, a lot of organizations I was part of at that time, it was easy to find me because I was only black face up in there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me a little bit. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you and Jeff know each other, right? Yes. How far back do you guys go? Uh, a long way. Oh, <laughs> yes. A long way. <laughs> a long, long way. You guys are keeping it short and sweet like you got some stories that can't be told on radio. Well, no. In fact, I think that I was probably on a panel with uh, Phil when he made that declaration. Uh, I have um, a memory of being on a panel at Vanderbilt, in fact. And uh, yeah. That's all I'm going to say right now. Okay. Okay. That's wonderful. (laughs) Okay. So I want to ask all of you this question. I'm interested in getting thoughts from all three of you about how you see, you know, the scene in back in the day, like describe some of the places you all went to. Phil. It's interesting. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, Actually, uh, for me, it was... Now, I remember going actually down to the, the jungle uh, one time and I didn't stay because at that time I was kind of young, like, I better get out of here because I wouldn't know because I was it was fearful, but real nice people. <laughs> and I thought, OK, um, but I but there's also other uh, other bars on the time. The other side uh, before my time was also a bar downtown called Watch Your Head, Watch Your Head and Coat and the old saloon that even predates those uh, bars. But still, when I started going out, I noticed that I still did not see a lot of people that looked like me for the most part. And when I started to become real active, still no people like that. But I still, that was not uh, something that deterred me to go back in, because I never knew what a closet was. Mm-hmm. The way I was brought up by my grandparents, you know, if you believe in something, then you do it. You don't hide behind anything if you believe that something is uh, is right for you. Jeff, that's not living your truth. I I understand that. I respect that. Jeff, tell me about the places you all used to hit up. Well, you know, at the time we would there you went to bars primarily. So there's the warehouse and the cabaret and the shoot complex and the world's end. And then there was also uh, Metropolitan Community Church was an early um, uh, force in the community, I think, for bringing people together. And um, for Stuart and I, it was the uh, uh, planning of the uh, March on Washington in 1987 that brought us together. And that seemed to precipitate um, political action in Nashville and uh, um, a, more of a political organization, if you will, that uh, focused on uh, our civil rights more so than our social lives. Marisa, 
Marissa, where did you all go for a good time? Well, um, uh, my main hangout was the jungle, although it had moved over to Fourth Avenue South at that time. But, uh, but Jeff actually mentioned every single one of the bars Jeff mentioned. I went to um, the cabaret. I think I went to actually there before I ever heard of the jungle. Um, there was the other side. Actually, I remember going there uh, back in the mid 70s. It was the first time I ever saw a drag show. Um, and then uh, the warehouse, the shoot, um, um, uh, you know, so uh, all of those places. Uh, but, but the jungle was my main hangout for a long time. I'm getting a sense of these places, but what did they feel like real quick? <laughs> Can I well, say I'll tell you, well, oh. well, Phil Michael was just saying that the jungle was uh, whatever word you just use. I always described it as it kind of grows on you like fungus. Um, it was not <laughs> fancy, um, but it was home. And <laughs> it's, you know, it's where where we hung out. Okay. okay. I think it's funny that you said it was home because I was going to say that when when you're gay and you haven't been out among a big group of gay people, when you go into a gay bar, gay bar, it is like you're going home. And I remember the first gay bar I ever went to was the warehouse, and I walked in and I was really nervous and hesitant about going in, and uh, two straight friends from college were with me and they were the ones who were pushing me to go in and uh, we got there and immediately you just felt like you're at home and you didn't have to pretend to be anything other than who you were you know speaking of that let's take a quick trip out east to lipstick lounge it's become somewhat of a nashville institution over the past few decades our producer rose gilbert takes us there It's a Friday night, and the small purple bar on the corner of Woodland Street and 14th is packed. Drag queens decked out in heels and glitter mill around in the crowd waiting to perform. Karaoke is already going strong. I think it's a pretty good vibe. I love the vibe. I love the people. I made a lot of good friends. I feel safe. I'm like with my people. Strong drinks. (laughs) Oh, hell yeah. It's an awesome place just to be gay, you know, do karaoke and have fun. Tonight, the main draw is a drag show. Ms. Kennedy Ann Scott is one of Lipstick Lounge's resident queens. She's been performing here for almost a decade. It is a neighborhood bar with a lot of flair. We are a bar for humans. We love everybody. We take anybody in. This is church for some people. That's right. She said church. This is a safe haven for some people. This is a fun bar, a good time, and you're never going to meet a stranger here. Here, church is singing a duet with a stranger. It's sharing a lighter and a round of drinks on the patio. At this church, you worship at the altar of queens like Kennedy Ann as they dance their hearts out. And the bar's founder, she knows all about worship. I'm very spiritual, truly believe in God. John DeValentine grew up the daughter of a West Virginia preacher. She was just 20 years old when she moved to Nashville in the 80s with her husband and son. After a while, they divorced, and John to spend a few years touring as a backup singer for country star Ronnie Millsap. Between traveling so much and coming to terms with her sexuality, she worried about losing custody. You could lose your kids at that in that period of time, especially in the South. Back then, it wasn't cool to be gay. So, feeling a little lost, she came back home to Nashville and prayed to God for an answer. Soon, a little voice appeared in the back of her mind. Open a bar, open a bar, open a bar. I thought, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, 
Then you show me a sign. And then it came to her in the dead of night, a passage from her grandmother's King James Bible ringing in her mind loud and clear. Thou shalt rise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of past to dwelling. That section right there is what meant so much to me because bringing people together is what it's all about. Years later, you can find that very passage printed on the signature purple wall over the DJ booth. It's a reminder of how Lipstick Lounge came to be and why. To repair the breach, to restore the paths. Now, John admits, getting started was not easy. We didn't know how to mix drinks, you know? We didn't know what we were doing. At one point, she got so frazzled trying to keep up with drink orders that she actually forgot to ask her customers to pay. So yeah, it was kind of comical. But they made it through, and that's thanks in large part to her best friend and co-owner, Krista Supan. Our DJ booth used to actually be right here. <laughs> that was it. Um, and then the bar was right here. One of the first things Krista did was redesign the bar to fit her and Jonda's exact needs. The guys that were here, I was like, Jonda, come here and stand next to me. So we stood side by side. And I was like, however wide our butts are together, that's how wide I want it to be. So they actually, that's exactly the size it is. They quickly found their groove. Over the years, the bar became a reliable destination for a good time. But without fail, it was also a spot where the community pulled together during hard times. After the Orlando Pulse shooting, they raised over $10,000 in just one night. We want to do something to make this world just a little bit better. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing anyway. Have you made it just a little bit better? Even if it's just the one person, have you, have you, left, it, have you left the jersey better than you found it? That's exactly what Krista hopes Lipstick Lounge does for its community. Having that sort of like you know, rainbow flag flying place that you know you can go to find other people in your community is invaluable. Julie Edwards has been something of a regular since she moved to Nashville just over three years ago. Yeah, like having that ability to be like, okay, I'm feeling really alone and I just need to be supported by com my community or I need to meet other people who are like me and having a space that you know you can go even if you don't know anybody and meet people who understand your experience. Not feeling alone, even in a bar full of strangers. After 19 years in business, that's what makes Lipstick Lounge so special. I can honestly say that I feel like I have done more of God's work, spreading love and helping people than I ever did in church. Of the valley, my bright and morning star, I don't care what people say. I'm going down on my knees today, and I'm going to wait, wait right here until he comes. <laughs> Thank, th thanks to our producer, Rose Gilbert, for taking us to Lipstick Lounge. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about today's queer scene. Don't go away. This is Nashville.
back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about our city's LGBTQ scene back in the day. After that quick trip to the past, it's only fitting to talk about where the scene is today. Now I'd like to introduce my next guests. Bean No, Desiree Arista, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, glad to be here. Desiree, I'd like to start with you. You were born and raised here. Tell me about your experience growing up. Yeah, uh, a native um, and have lived here off and on throughout the decades. Um, But when I came out, I came out right after my high school graduation back in 2001 uh, and made my way to places like The Connection, The Shoot, um, as well as The Cabaret Episode 2. Um, and then shortly thereafter, while I was in college, um, places like the Lipstick Lounge, Play, and Tribe opened up, which really um, o- opened its way for just more community building through the years. Bean, I'm curious about how your experience compares. You came to Nashville later, but you grew up in rural Vietnam. What was your experience like, my friend? Growing up in a very south of Vietnam, uh, and it it in a very poor countryside of Vietnam. Uh, at that time, I still don't have a lot of information about the LGBTQ. And seem like the pressure uh, come from the neighbor. Like people usually uh, talk about talk about you to your parents. So um, I see not many of my friends coming out, even though that I know that I'm different because I'm from a, from a middle from the middle school, um, instead of playing sport with, you know, all the uh, boys, I seem like I like to play uh, baby doll with all the girls in class and come from a, a very poor uh, countryside. At that time, we don't even have like, you know, like a real baby doll. Sometimes we use the water bottle and we use, you know, we use clothes and make up a baby doll and play. And um, it's it, pretty conservative. People still not very open <clears throat> back then, like 10 years ago. Now Vietnam, I think, become much better because a lot of singer and famous actors, they come out and they share their story. So now the neighbor and, you know, the people in general become supporting it. So every time, like, a parent have a children that coming out, seems like the, the neighbor cheer them up and want them to support their, their children. Like, it's a completely different picture now. So what is that like? I mean, you grew up, like you said, with now a lot of representation, but now you're surrounded by queer community. How does that feel? Oh, it, I, it's just like a wonderful feeling to be able to be yourself. And that and knowing out there some people that they, they people out there, many people out there that understand you. Because at that time in Vietnam, I don't even know what the gay mean, you know, what the, uh, the LGBT definition. But when I first come here, I have to be honest, in the, um, 2011, when I'm 14 and a half, I come to the U.S. And I go to a uh, um, Christian school in Lebanon. They call Friendship Christian School in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, I have to be honest, at that time, it's still not very open, especially in Lebanon. I know Nashville is a big, uh, is a big difference. But um, but I'm very. I have to be honest. I'm very lucky that I still receive the the love and the care from the uh, from my friend and from the uh, teacher at at uh, Friendship Christian. I I think that um, even though they cannot like su- 
supporting you um, openly supporting you but they they inside they are hurt they love you and um, and they also try to supporting you in other way and um, and I feel very very lucky to uh, to have that now you were both listening and we heard some great stories in our last segment and I'm curious Desiree what role do elders in the community play for you uh, they they play a huge role you know they're they're the reason I have been able to become the person and and, and thrive in, in a, a growing LGBTQ scene. Um, I remember, you know, when I first came out, there were a group of women that I had met um, who, t- who had taken me in essentially and invited me um, to spend time with them. They would have house co- uh, concert. It was called the Purple House uh, concert. And it was from there that I was able to be more exposed to what was going on. Um, Because back then, you know, we had the beginning of the Internet, but it wasn't uh, the social network that it is today. So we had sites like gay.com, planetout.com as the main outlets for finding community, as well as the AOL chat rooms. Um, But there was places like the Out Loud bookstore um, and the Gay and Lesbian Center there. That was uh, that's where Canvas is located today. Um, those were, you know, one of the few outlets for actually learning more about um, our history. Um, so I'm very grateful for the folks that had appeared in my life, those women, Anne and Bev and Luana, who really uh, gave me an understanding uh, and an education in, you know, what it is to be um, a queer person in Asheville. Phil Michael Thomas is still with us. Phil, how do you feel about this moment in time for our queer community? Well, I, um, by the way, I, I know what you're talking about, the Purple House, had some wonderful concert there. As far <laughs> as today, I'm glad to see the youth that's feeling comfortable to be who they are without doubt, without fear. And I feel that the older elders did make that path. Uh, I do feel that uh, we kind of been the foundation for them to stand down so they can continue to live their truth. In many ways, Nashville has gotten a lot more accepting in recent years, but there's also been kind of a backlash in our state legislature. Desiree, as a Nashville native, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, at times it definitely feels like, you know, are we taking a step back? But when you really think about it, it's kind of cyclical, you know, depending on what's happening politically and, you know, who's in office, you'll find that you'll, like in the early 90s when Bill Clinton was president, there was a sense of, you know, freedom uh, of expression in the what they call the gay 90s. Um, But then once the Bush administration took hold in 2002, it kind of felt like we were dealing with more of a a closed circuit and we had to really, you know, hunker down and take care of one another in community. Um, So it's it's it does feel a little bit like why are we having to continue fighting these same fights? Um, in hopes of one day that we won't have to really defend who we are and who we love. We can just be. Phil, what's it like for you to see this developing in our legislature? It's it's uh, sad. It feels like we are going backwards. I mean, not even back to the 60s or 70s. I feel like we're going back centuries. I mean, we are and it's out of hatred. It's not out of love. It's, it's not out of Christian faith and all that too. And we have wonderful places like Edge Hill was the first congreg- uh, 
first congregation uh, uh, allowed gays in there. But yet we are going back and we're using Christianity as the way that's a crutch to say we don't like gays and lesbians and trans and all that, too, which is a lie. What is something about the LGBTQ community in Nashville that brings you hope and joy? Bean, I'd like for you to answer first. Um, I think that... um, um, can, can you repeat the question? What about the community brings you joy here in Nashville? Oh, I feel like the loving and the caring uh, that people giving us, that, you know, I, the support thing that, that make us feel safe, make us feel like we are uh, welcome here. When I go to um, Cumberland University, uh, uh you know, we have, uh, I'm very lucky to have a director, uh, the student uh, success and student life director that um, give me the opportunity to um, to bring back the one of the organization that have been uh, failed out because some of the students graduate, they call prior life and we gather together and, um, you know, create a, um, a supporting group that for and we create a lot of event that in helping other students to feel welcome when they come to the school, and they also um, uh, you know we create a lot of um, uh, event to uh, for example the one about people uh, get shooting in Orlando. We also create a candlelight vivid for them to in mem- in memory of that. So I think. Um, some of that happening a lot, not just for me, but I also want to see other people feeling they they welcome to be on campus, and and they um they feel like they belong there. And lucky for me that when I uh, start apply for the job, and I'm uh, the company that I'm working for now, uh, they call PSB CPA uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. They also um, they help you out. Yes, very diverse and inclusive policy to, to help the staff. and That's uh, fantastic. Yes. That's fantastic. Real quick, Desiree, I'd like for you to answer to what about the community? What brings you hope and joy? What brings me hope and joy is being able to just see more queer, queer people out and about in the community, being themselves, being open, holding hands, um, and that there are still spaces, you know, even though the brick and mortar um clubs and bars that we used to frequent um, for a sense of community because we had to, you know, I guess hide essentially. Uh, I am grateful for um, events and the folks that put together QDP, the queer dance party, the monthly parties. I, I appreciate that, especially the fact that those were events that brought together multiple generations under one roof, um, you know, getting their groove on essentially. Um, because no matter what, our, our our community always appreciates that opportunity to let our hair down and dance and be free. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. I want to give thanks to Bino, Desiree Arista, and Philip Michael Thomas. Okay, it's the end of the week, so I'm going to hop out of my host chair and into the passenger seat. Each Friday, you can join me as I ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Today, I am taking a trip with Ben Slinkert, a.k.a. Kennedy Ann Scott, as she heads to the Lipstick Lounge for her trivia drag show. Check it out. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Awesome. My name is Ben Slinkert, um, also known as Kennedy Ann Scott. 
Nice to meet you, Vince. Nice to meet you. Slash Kennedy. Yes. How long have you lived here in Nashville? 11 years. So, okay. a moment. A little bit. You've seen Nashville change. <laughs> I have. From whenever there was not so many people to when the big boom came. Mm-hmm. So, kind of right before the big boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to give you props on deftly navigating that little bit of traffic we saw on the freeway <laughs> right there. I thought we were going to get stuck for a few minutes. No. You have lived here for a while. You know these streets, huh? I do, I do. Um, and I, so like one of my favorite things to do is like, when I'm a little stressed out or when I'm really feeling down, I love to go on drives um, and just blare my music and just listen. So like, I've always been better at directions where landmarks, uh-huh. <laughs> so I can tell you how to get somewhere, but I don't always know the street names, but I'm like, oh, it's over here by the church and the third left. Like Those landmarks are changing. They are, for sure. So I guess I'll have to start getting lost again. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to show you where I live because yeah. we were talking about it. So this is the historic Buena Vista neighborhood, and I live right down here. I'm right here on the corner. Nice. And I know. I love my little community. and Neighbors are nice? Neighbors are amazing. We, uh, we have, like, little block parties back in our parking lot back here. Okay. Um, and really getting to know all different types of walks of life. Let's go back to when you first got here. Okay. What was Nashville like? I felt like Nashville, when I first got here, was also growing up and coming into its own. It was kind of cool to see a city kind of grow with me as I was going through things and growing and changing and becoming more of myself. When I first came out, a lot of people were like, oh, that's my gay friend, Ben. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I was just Ben. Yeah, I came out as gay, but I've always been me. I think just in general in society, people see the gay and then the person. Then the person. Or like people see the skin color. Exactly. And then they see the person, if they get a chance to see that. Yeah. People are like, this is my gay friend, Ben. Like, automatically you're supposed to style somebody's (laughs) clothes or hair or break into a show tune song and dance number. Yes. Or will you go shopping with me? Uh Uh-huh. I'm not an accessory. Yeah. Like, I'm not an accessory. I'm a person. How did you get into drag? I was a senior in high school, and a couple of my girlfriends were like, oh, we want to dress you up for fun. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah. But I wasn't out at that time. Okay. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? When you saw yourself for the first time, oh gosh, how did you feel? <laughs> I felt amazing. Um, I was like, oh, my gosh, look out, world. You know, I think all drag queens go through that stage where they're just really full of themselves. Like, I could take on the world, I'm the hottest thing. You know, all all baby queens go through that. But then you know in deep inside yourself, it's like a part of you and you're like, this is amazing. I think sometimes being feminine is seen as a bad thing, even for dads to say that, you know, they love their gay son. That's I think sometimes that's even really hard because we can't believe that a masked man can love his feminine gay child. You know, men in this country are really deceived constantly. It's not about being masked or femme or anything. It's about being you. Boys always have to live up to a certain standard. And I think we really like, we really mess with our society with that because I feel like the best men are in touch with both sides. 
whenever I'm on stage, I have to kind of get a feel for who is at my show. So before my show even starts, I go and I talk to people. And I just like make jokes, walk around, be sassy, really like kind of see where my audience is. But yeah, like I, there are certain things that I'm like, let's just enjoy ourselves. Miss Kennedy Ann Scott, how is it going? Hello, it's going wonderful. Getting ready for our big O show and game show. Yes, it's going to be a good time. Oh, it better be. And your outfit is rocking. You definitely went very, very 80s, like you Thank said. Thank you. This big uh, hair. Big hair, big brunette hair. <laughs> Rolling Stones sequence yes. shirt. Always got to have a little sequin. It looks nice. How does the um, trivia game work out? So it's called Figure It Out. So okay. it's like a clue-based trivia game. So there's six rounds. All right, so... We have several teams playing tonight, and you're playing for first place gets a $50 gift card to lipstick. Yes. And the losing team tonight gets a pack of Hall's cough drops already open. Yes. That is on fire. Honey, this booty is something tonight. God. We have Queerly Beloved. We have the Lone Stranger. There he is back in the back. Lone Stranger was me, by the way. Let me tell you what, I had a blast that night. Thanks for tagging along with me for that ride to Lipstick Lounge with Queen Kennedy and Scott. Tune in Monday as we celebrate Meruz. It's our Kurdish community's New Year's celebration. That's a wrap for our third week of This Is Nashville. Listen back to all of our episodes at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our news director, Emily Siner, and our theme musicians, LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Laura Taylor, Pratik Dash, Sarah Kalis, John Bridges, and our very own LaTanya Turner. The conversation doesn't end here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. Be good to each other. <laughs>